0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. This summer, as you know, we've been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, which is the story of God's people returning from exile in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem, and the rebuilding effort was successful. We've been looking at that all summer. But at the end of the book, the theme that emerges and the theme that we're looking at in these last few weeks of the series is one of commitment followed by failure. I was thinking about that this week and talking with Debbie. Do you ever have those moments where everything is like suddenly super clear Everything makes sense in life. You know what you need to do. You see the path you need to go down. Even like, like plans to do that. And then just a few weeks or months later, you're totally off course. Uh, what about with God? Sometimes this happens with God. We, we have these moments where we see how good God is. And how good it is to walk in his ways. And we have all this spiritual sort of energy and zeal to prioritize our life around him. We make plans to do that. And then just like weeks or months later, we've lost that zeal. Nobody? Okay. Like, if this is just me, then I'm going to need this sermon a lot more than I thought I was going to. Okay, Damon's with me. Thank you. Well, look, this is kind of what happens at the end of Nehemiah. Uh, In Nehemiah 10, they're celebrating all that God's done for them. It's this grand worship service. And in that moment, they have this moment of clarity. They see God, they see what he's done, and so they make these commitments to him. They they make a covenant with God. This is what they say. They say, we're going to walk in the law that God has given us through Moses. We're going to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Everything was so clear in that moment. It's like a a spiritual mountaintop. They can see God's goodness for miles. And, And when we come to the end of chapter 12, the note is that the joy of Jerusalem was heard Far away. And so we're there. We're with them on this mountaintop. It's great. And then we turn the page to Nehemiah 13 and all of a sudden we're somewhere very different. We're in a dark valley. Instead of commitment and joy, there's neglect and cursing. What happened? Well, between Nehemiah 12 and Nehemiah 13, there's actually a pretty significant time gap. After the dedication of the walls, Nehemiah left town, and then after some time, he went back to Jerusalem to see how things were going. And to say that they had gotten off course would be an understatement. It was, it was a total disaster. Every aspect of the rebuilding effort had been compromised. The first item in the report that Nehemiah gives was that they had neglected the temple, and we looked at that last week. The second item in Nehemiah 13 is that they have profaned the Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath is another major theme, not just in Nehemiah, but throughout the whole scriptures. And so, as we did last week, we're going to look at this theme, this situation in Nehemiah, but then follow the storyline through to Jesus and to the new covenant that he brings that means we're going to look at a few different passages. I don't want it to be complicated, so I'll just move us along uh, fairly quickly. And we'll focus in on this theme. In chapter 10, they say, essentially, we will keep the Sabbath day holy. And then in chapter 13, Nehemiah asks, what is this evil thing that you've done by profaning the Sabbath day? Uh, to profane something means to treat it with disrespect. Disrespect. And so in this case, they are treating the Sabbath day like it was just any other ordinary day. And that's disrespectful to God because God made the Sabbath day holy. But more than that, their neglect of it reveals a lack of trust in God. That's the human condition. Instead of trusting God, our anxiety and our greed and our insecurity keeps us running on the treadmills of, productivity and consumption, because we think that if we can just do a little more or get a little more, then we'll finally have rest. But it never works, because as Augustine said, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. The theme of the Sabbath day points us to the good news that God gives us true rest in his Son. Jesus. So what is this rest in Christ, and how do we get it? That's where we're going today, Uh, but let's start in Nehemiah. Again, in Nehemiah 10, this this is the commitment that they make. They say, if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on any holy day. Now look, this isn't just like a value statement. It's not like, you know, good for you, Chick-fil-A. It's not like that. Sabbath was a huge deal in Israel. I mean, it's the fourth commandment. There's only 10. It's one of those. All right. So let me just tell you what the fourth commandment says. So you have a, a sense of it. In Exodus 20, you see it beginning in verse eight. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so again, it's a day that's set apart from the other days. And the way that they would keep it holy was to set it apart in their actual lives, to respect it. The next verse tells us how they would do that. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. This isn't just about your job. It's about your labor. It's about getting things done and making things happen. It's about the endless to-do list. The Sabbath day is a day to acknowledge that God is our creator and that our existence as his creation is more important than what we produce. And it was a day of rest for everyone. The command goes on to include your sons, your daughters, your servants, your livestock, and sojourners. See, the Sabbath day protected everyone from abuse and exploitation. It was a day that promoted a community of equality and love. And then finally, it's rooted in God's own rhythm of work and rest in creation. That's the end of the command. It says, For in, the six, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it Holy. Okay? That's the command. That's what the Sabbath day is. It's also really important, though, to realize the context into which God gave them this command. They were in the wilderness, so fresh out of Egypt and on their way to Canaan, the promised land. And the Sabbath day speaks to both contexts. Uh, First, it was a sign, God said to them, of their freedom from slavery. Egypt was a world of of endless demand. The command of Pharaoh was always to do more and more and more. And it's into that world that God speaks this liberating command. Do your work and then rest. Free people, rest and enjoy God and the world that he created. If you never stop your work, your labor, you'll just end up enslaved to the do-more gods of Egypt. Second, this command was preparing them for life in Canaan, the land of rest. Walter Brueggemann says that if life in Egypt was about productivity, then the challenge in Canaan would be consumption. They would be so prosperous there. I mean, it's the land of milk and honey. What else do you need? They would be so prosperous that... Uh, they would begin to think that they can manage on their own. They would forget their need for God and they would live as if they didn't need him. Uh, These are the gods of Canaan, the have more, get more, consumption gods. And so God gave them a day to stop their consuming and to give thanks for his gracious provision. So you see why this is a big deal? to neglect the Sabbath day was not just like breaking some laws, it was neglecting God himself. It was forgetting all that he had done and living your life in a way that said, I don't need God. And tragically, that's exactly what happened. Uh, There are many examples of this. Ezekiel 20 gives us one. Here, God says, The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness, and my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. And so I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them. So that first generation, uh, because they profaned the Sabbath, they didn't get to enter into Canaan. Their kids did. The next generation did. And guess what happened? They too rebelled against me and profaned my Sabbaths. And so when we get to Nehemiah, many years later, uh, these people have been in exile because of this very thing, that their fathers had neglected God's law and profaned his Sabbath. And so they know that's their story and they don't want to repeat it. So when they make this commitment, they're saying, Yahweh is our God. We belong to him and we trust him. And the evidence of our trust is we'll keep the Sabbath day holy. That's the commitment. Now, practically, what that means in Jerusalem is shutting down the city walls, the gates to the city walls. Uh, The wall is for protection, but it's also a center of economic activity. It's where people come in and and buy and sell goods. And so the Sabbath day was a day to close the gates, to let the city rest, to remember that God is our protector and our provider. But what does Nehemiah find when he comes back? Nehemiah 13, verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine press on the Sabbath bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine grapes figs all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day and then he tells them did not your fathers act in this way and did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city because of that Now are you bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? Nehemiah's response was to close the gates. He had a lot of power, so he shut the city down. In other words, he he sort of enforces the Sabbath rest upon them. But we're left wondering, well, is that going to last? Is that going to change their hearts? We're wondering if the gods of do more and have more are going to creep their way back in somehow. And the reason we're wondering that is because we feel the pull in our own hearts. Their failure and our failures just leave us longing for more, don't they? We need a leader who won't just force rest upon us, but who can change our hearts and give us true rest. So the profaned Sabbath of Nehemiah 13 points us to The Lord of the Sabbath in the New Testament. Let's talk about him. His name is Jesus. By the time of Jesus, the religious leaders had made Sabbath keeping extremely complicated. Uh, We have a saying don't miss the forest for the trees. That's exactly what happened to them. They had just laws upon laws about how to keep the laws regarding the Sabbath, and they lost the heart of the command. Uh, The day, ironically, had become so burdensome. And so Jesus, into that world of complicated and burdensome Sabbath laws, speaks these words. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Radical, refreshing words from Jesus. A yoke was a tool that helped an ox do its work. And so this is not an invitation to escape work or escape responsibilities. It's an invitation to just go about things a different way. Jesus is saying, hey... The do-more, have-more way of life is totally exhausting. I can see it on your face. Why don't you come to me and learn how to live life with me and find rest? Right after this verse, that verse is at the end of Matthew 11, right after that, the beginning of Matthew 12, we get this story of Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. The disciples are hungry, so they pluck some heads of grain to eat which was against the Sabbath laws. So the Pharisees, who are like the Sabbath police, they rush to the scene, and they're like, hey, 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 that's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so Jesus enters into this debate. Now listen, the debate is not about whether we should observe the Sabbath day. That's assumed. The debate is about what is entailed in observing the Sabbath day. And one of the things Jesus does is he takes them to this place in the law, in their law where the, it talks about how the priests in the temple uh, were allowed to do things on the Sabbath day that they wouldn't be allowed to do outside of the temple. And so they're doing things that technically profane the Sabbath day. But because they're doing them in the temple and in service to the temple, they're not guilty. And what he's saying is, the disciples serve me, and so they're not guilty of violating the Sabbath law. And then he says, this is the punchline, Because I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That's what we looked at last week, that Jesus is the true and better temple. And then right after that, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Because you know, the Pharisees are thinking, who are you to decide who gets to do what on this day? And Jesus says, who am I? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Which means he made the Sabbath, so he can do whatever he wants with it. Mark tells us he gave it to us as a gift. It's for us. It's it's a gift to creation so that we would remember our creator and steward his blessing. The Pharisees had made it so burdensome and restrictive that you could hardly do anything, even things that would be helpful to others. Jesus comes along and says, no, the Sabbath is a day of blessing. You should do good on the Sabbath, especially to those in need. And so the very next thing that happens in this story is a man with a withered hand comes into the temple and Jesus heals him because he's Jesus. That's what you should do. And the Pharisees think that he's violating the Sabbath when in fact, he's fulfilling it. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority over the Sabbath. He can do with it what he wants. Now, when you come to the rest of the New Testament and to the New Covenant, the question is, like, well, what does that mean for us, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath? Uh, the emphasis in the New Testament is not so much on keeping a Sabbath day, though I think the principle is there. I think it's a good and wise practice for you to do. But the practice of a day of rest represents a deeper reality that Christ brings, which is rest for our souls. Um, The best way I know how to define rest for the soul is to be satisfied with God. Soul rest is a disposition of satisfaction with God. Think about words like peace, contentment, joy, confidence. Put all that together. That's what it feels like, to be satisfied with God deep down In your soul. It doesn't mean that we'd never feel anxious or vulnerable. It just means that we can bring those emotions to God and come to a place of rest in Him. The psalmists do this kind of thing all the time. In their trouble and in their anger and in their confusion, they come to God and they end up saying things like Your word is my delight, your nearness is my good. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. Rest. One day, we will be in the presence of God and we'll be totally satisfied. But what the scriptures are telling us is that even now, we can enter into and taste that rest in Christ. So, I want to close with two questions. Um, What keeps us from doing that, from entering into his rest? And how can we do it? I think Hebrews 4 answers both of those questions. I know we're going to another text now. It's going to be quick, all right? Stay with me. Hebrews 3 and 4 is about the rest that's available to God's people. And it draws upon the story of Israel in the wilderness and not getting into Canaan. The last verse in Hebrews 3 says that they didn't get to enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. The reason they didn't enter in was because of their unbelief. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe that he would protect and provide for them. Now, the dangerous thing about unbelief is it doesn't just happen all at once. It develops and grows through repeated experiences of not dealing with discontentment and disappointment And doubt. And over time, it just hardens your heart toward God. You don't want to engage Him. In your mind, you believe in God. (laughs) But deep down, you don't trust Him. So, if your heart is restless, the problem is not that you're just really overwhelmed and stressed and busy right now, those are symptoms. The problem is that in some way you've let discontentment and doubt pile up, unchecked, to the point that it has hardened your heart toward God and you don't trust him. That's the nature of unbelief. Hebrews 3 says they didn't enter because of their unbelief. Hebrews 4 then invites us to come on in, to enter into his rest by believing in Jesus. Here's a very quick survey of the beginning of Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 1 says, the promise of entering his rest still stands, good news. And verse 3 gives us an example. He says, for those who have believed have already entered into his rest. And so the invitation in verse 7 is, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, incidentally, this is what I think is so good about a weekly practice of a day of rest. If you never come before God and hear his voice, get in his word, be with his people, repent of sin, sing songs, pray, if you just never bring yourself before God, then you won't know that your heart is hardening and it'll get harder and harder to hear him. But when we have these short accounts, these weekly check-ins, our hearts stays soft. And so today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because you can enter into his rest right now by grace through faith in him. The rest of the passage gives us a picture of what that means. It tells us what it is that Jesus did for us and therefore what it means to believe in him. So Hebrews 4.12, maybe a familiar text to you, says this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So, this is about judgment, which doesn't feel like rest at all. (laughs) But you have to go through the unrest of these verses to get to the true rest. It's saying that God's word exposes us, lays us bare. It reveals the areas of unbelief and the hardness in our heart. Uh, and to be laid bare before God is, is terrifying. Because we know that we don't measure up to his standards. We don't even measure up to our own standards. It's terrifying. Here's the interesting thing about the term laid bare. It means to... Um, stretch out. It it was a word that was used uh, when a soldier would capture an enemy, stretch back his neck, and cut him. You see the reference in the verses that the word of God is like a double-edged sword. It was always used to describe the animal sacrifices in the temple. And so this is a picture of judgment. If there's a God of justice, then we're all going to be cut off from God will be exposed but then in verse 16 right after that it says we should draw near to God let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need how how can we draw near with confidence when we're laid bare and should be cut off from God This is the gospel. We can draw near because Jesus was cut off in our place. He offered up his body as a sacrifice for sin. He was stretched out and pierced on the cross for us. Laid bare to the world. Cast into the unrest of our sin. And when he had died the death that we deserve to die... He said, it is finished. Jesus is the righteous one. This is what Paul says, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. If we are still striving for a righteousness of our own, we'll never find rest. But if he's our righteousness, then we can rest in his finished work on the cross. It's good news. Believing in Jesus means trusting. Like really, not just on paper, but deep down in your soul that God accepts you and has granted you eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't add anything to that. There's nothing else to say finished But that reality shapes how we live our lives in so many ways. But in this case, it gives us the freedom to put our doing down and rest in him in very practical ways. That's why I think we should practice a day of rest weekly. Listen, this is not a new law. You're not going to earn anything by this, and there'd be no condemnation if you don't do it. I'm just saying, if you want to resist the gods of do more and have more, if you want to keep from drifting into unbelief, I can't think of a better thing to do than to put your doing down once a week. Remember God as your creator and remember what he's done for you in Christ and remember your deep dependence on him. We have a father in heaven who loves us and gives us all that we need and a weekly day of rest helps us just remember that and worship him for it. When Jesus returns, we'll inherit an eternal Sabbath day. Rest without end. Until then, we can enter into that rest now by trusting in him. Whoever's weary, draw near to God with confidence and he will give you rest. Whatever burdens you bring him, he can take it and in return he will give you mercy and grace to help in your time of need and you'll be satisfied in him let's pray father we bring our restless hearts to you right now we bring the unrest of this season the anxieties and the burdens that we feel our own unbelief about whether things will be okay and whether it will be okay. And we bring that all to you and we ask for mercy and grace in our time of need. Uh, Would you make real to us now the, the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection? Would you stir our hearts to worship him? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. As we come to the communion table, uh, the communion table is an invitation to come and find rest. Uh, The night before his death, knowing what he was going to go through, Jesus had a meal with his friends, and at that meal he took a piece of bread and he broke it, and he says, this is my body given for you. As often as you eat of this, do so in remembrance of me. He took a cup of wine, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. Whoever eats of this bread is acknowledging that Jesus is the bread of life, and if we feast on him, we'll never hunger again. And whoever drinks this cup is acknowledging that Jesus is the fountain of life, and whoever drinks of him will never thirst again. We'll be satisfied. Let's give thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.